I want to begin by sharing with you a story, and in a day or two you'll get the encounter, and you can read maybe it again or a little more about it. But it's a story about um, Kathy Haganah, who goes to our church here. For 12 years, um, she had is what is called premature ventricular contraction, or PVC. She'd been plagued with this. PVCs are essentially extra heartbeats. And Kathy had learned to live through these 12 years with lethargy and took medication to keep her heartbeat at near normal levels. Weekend naps were the only way she could find enough energy to make it through her work week. Some of you, as you read this and and hear the story, um, what's not in here is she was sitting in one of our adult classes in March and Ron Holtgren was teaching on the Bible and healing. And Ron mentioned that we, according to James 5, anoint people with oil for healing. And so if you're kind of going, well, what's this about? You're not real familiar with uh, the Bible or the church. This is a good place to be because we really want you to feel welcome and to understand that we believe, according to God's word, that when, when a person has any kind of need, we're to come to God in prayer. And one of those things is even physical healing. Not that you disregard medical help and doctors at all, but um, we bring those things before the Lord as the Lord prompts us and, and as he moves in our hearts to do so. And so Kathy, hearing that, called and made an appointment for prayer and we prayed for her. And as she relates, there was, as she came into that room where there were those who prayed for her, there was an immense amount of personal caring. These are her words. It was amazing. I started to cry. About 15 minutes into the prayer, I felt the extra heartbeats go away. It was awesome. I felt this confirmation of God's love. Later in EKG, she went to the doctor, confirmed what Kathy already knew. It was the first time ever in 12 years that she was handed a normal EKG. On Thursday before the message, Kathy sent me an email. And she said, I will again miss your sermon this Sunday. But I like this next part. So I intend on getting the CD. She continues. This is the best I have felt in ages. The absolutely dead feeling that I would have by the end of the week is gone. I'm able to stay up later and sleep better. There were no PVCs on my EKG. The doctor told me my heart sounded great and he could not hear any PVCs. I told him I didn't want to do anything at this point with regard to surgery, and he agreed to wait for six months. And so we're praying for her. She's attended Wyzetta Free for over ten years, and it was interesting. After we prayed, she looked up, and she looked so calm and refreshed. That's what my observation was of Kathy. And, uh, and as she looked up at me and, and us, she said, I felt for a long time that God had been asking me to be anointed. For healing by the elders. Honestly, this is what hit me. I didn't think the elders did this. Basically, what I want to share with you, that's kind of the question underlying what we're going to look at in this passage of Matthew. Do you do this, God? Are you willing? And I really don't want anyone to leave here with this question unanswered in their mind. So if you look at Matthew 8, verses 1 through 4, it says that when he came down from the mountainside, large crowds followed him. A man with leprosy came 
and knelt before him and said, Lord, if you're willing, you can make me clean. And Jesus reached out his hand and touched the man. I am willing, he said, be clean. Immediately he was cured of his leprosy. Then Jesus said to him, see that you don't tell anyone, but go show yourself to the priest and offer the gift Moses commanded as a testimony to them. Well, in this statement, I think is very interesting because it's a statement, but there's hidden in it a question. And I think it's a question that millions and millions of people really ask and and, and what they're beginning often in times when they're facing physical illness. It could be other things going on in their life. They're just asking this question. And it's usually not a matter of ability, because I think most people, when they think about God, they think God has the power and the ability if he's God. I think the question is, will you put your heart toward me? I wonder if you resonate with that question. Maybe you yourself have asked that or you are asking that as you're praying for someone. What I find is interesting when we come to Matthew 8, and we look at this passage of Scripture. And you have to understand, as I was led to preach on this, I was in my own quiet times. And as I was reading through Matthew, I came across chapters 8 and 9. And what hit me was I saw these these healings of Jesus all kind of put together. As, as we said last week, and if you weren't here, I encourage you to get this message because it kind of frames where we are heading. Last week, as I shared, chapter 4, verse 23 begins where it talks about the characteristic of Jesus' ministry was he says to, to teach, to preach, and to heal every sickness and disease. And as you read and go on, it's framed at the other end. So you have this beginning. Here's the characteristic of his ministry. You go to the end of chapter 9, and in the same verse, I believe it's about verse 35, that same idea is placed before there. It's, here's, the, here's the characteristics of his ministry. Jesus is going to teach, preach, and heal. And it says again, every disease and sickness. And then if you go to chapter 10, verse 1, it uses the same words again as he calls the disciples to go out and do this. And what I think is interesting is what Jesus is saying. This is, this, Matthew is saying this characterizes the ministry of Jesus. So then in chapters 5 through 7, you have just a, a whole lot of teaching. It's Jesus declaring the kingdom. And that's what the Sermon on the Mount and all that's about. And you get to the end of it, and it says the people were amazed at his teaching because he spoke as one who actually authored the words he was talking about. And then it goes into chapter 8. Which is now after the declaration of the kingdom, you see the demonstration of the reality of the kingdom. As, as Jesus goes from one person to another person and you see the work of, of God and his power being demonstrated through Jesus himself and the reality of those, he says, who come into the kingdom, who experience the love and compassion and the, the outworking of God's life into their life. And that's where he ends then with chapter 9, which is a very interesting thing, because at the end of chapter 9, instead of saying, like he says in chapter 4, the first bookend, this is here's the characteristic of his ministry. He ends now in chapter 9, and he says, as Jesus looks at the sheep, he goes, they look helpless. And he says, there's few workers, so ask the Lord for the harvest. And then in chapter 10, verse 1, he looks at his disciples, he says, go out and do this. This is really interesting. Um, this, I think, com- compilation of, of Matthew where he is basically saying, Jesus said he'd do this and then he did it. And he calls them to do the same. Well, as you look at this passage of Scripture, then you have to ask yourself, why did he start in chapter 8 with this miracle? That's what I began to ask myself. 
And you need to understand this very important thing. And that is, it is important where he has placed this first miracle. There's something important about this that he's teaching because... As Don Carson, who a New Testament professor, a very intelligent man, he was in fact my professor at Trinity Seminary, uh, probably honestly one of the most intelligent men I have ever met. I mean, we would ask him a question about something and he would answer it with A, you know, point one A, one, two, three, point B, then to point two. You know, I mean, it's just his mind was just like unbelievable. Well, he writes in his commentary, he says, Matthew's arrangement of these accounts in chapters eight and nine is demonstrably topical. They're not chronological. Now, that's a very important thing to understand. He's not the only one, any commentator, who would tell you this. It is arranged in a topical way because Matthew is trying to teach something. All these pericopes, or the word idea stories, except chapter 8, verses 5 through 13, verses 18 through 22, in chapter 9, 32 through 34, are paralleled in Mark, but not in the same order. And these three above, those same ones, those ones which aren't in Mark, are actually found in Luke. And Matthew, writes Don Carson, does not purport to follow anything other than a topical arrangement, and most of his time indicators are very loose. And the reason I'm sharing this with you is because you need to understand that Matthew is trying to tell us something about the kingdom of God. If you want to continue, just kind of look at it. We'll see it in the weeks to come. You'll see that in chapter 8, there are three miracles, healings. And then after those three healings, there's a call to to discipleship, the cost of it. And then he goes into three more miracles, the healing of of nature, the storm, the healing of the demon possessed, the healing of the paralytic in chapter 9, then the calling of Matthew. Again, a call to discipleship. And then he goes through three more, where there's a dead girl and a sick woman, and then Jesus heals the blind person. And then he says this was the characteristic of Jesus' ministry. And instead of a call to discipleship, there's a sending of his disciples to do the same. And I think this question, why did Matthew put these verses as the first story of healing in this position is critical. It's foundational, I think, to the entire understanding of healing, which is under that is, is God's attitude and his heart. What is God's will toward healing? Whether it's physical, emotional, mental or relational. The word in, in, in the Greek, save, that he came to save us, the root of that word is the idea of healing. It's the idea that Jesus comes to heal and restore all that is in our life. And so you have to ask yourself, is God interested in our physical healing? Or is he kind of tepid about our pains and suffering? Is he kind of lukewarm towards it? Does he look at us at times when we're pleading to him, for healing, and, and does he go, ah, you know, I'd rather not to do that. It's not really that big of a deal. The basic question I think Matthew wants his readers to wrestle with is, is hidden in the statement. And the one I want us to seriously just takes a few moments to, to look at it. Is God willing to heal? And what I want to share with you, I'm not going to go into all the reasons why, you know, when a healing doesn't occur, what's going on. I just want to push as hard as I can this idea of what is God calling you to do when you are in a position, whether no matter what the circumstance really is in life, but just let's use specifically here physical healing. What does God call us to do? And the story is really quite simple as you look at it. Jesus comes down the mountain. He's been up there. He's been teaching the Sermon on the Mount. 
and which is characteristic of his ministry, great crowds followed him everywhere. And as you look at Matthew's account compared to the other accounts, because this story is found in other accounts, it's really quite sterile and it's right to the point. Mark states that when the man came to Jesus, he fell at his knees. Now, Matthew says that, and the idea of falling is the same word in the Greek that means almost a sense of worshiping. It's almost a sense of understanding that he's in the presence of someone who has power and authority and is great. No doubt this leper was aware of the fact that Jesus had healed other people. So he comes to him and he kneels almost in a sense of worship. But Mark adds this. That's not found in Matthew. Mark says he begged Jesus. He pleaded for healing. His action was really bold. Lepers were were told to, by traditions and laws, to not come anywhere near people. In fact, they were supposed to stand a measured distance away, and they were supposed to stand downwind. So that their infectiousness would not be caught. So this guy is in a position where he's saying, God, I am in such a place of isolation, loneliness. My heart is so crying out to you. I understand that you, this Lord, this rabbi, have something that I need. And he falls at his feet and he begs. And Mark also then adds the emotion of Jesus, which Matthew doesn't tell us about. He writes... That Jesus, as he fall, this man falls before him, almost in a, a sense of, of complete brokenness, says that Jesus' heart was filled with compassion. Now, the law would say, don't touch that person, because touching that person would make you unclean. But it's really interesting, though the law says don't touch, love says reach out. Let's just grab hold. And Jesus, filled with compassion, representing the heart of God. When he sees your brokenness, when he sees the pain, he sees your suffering. He is not standing up there. Jesus did not kind of go um, and just kind of reach out a little bit and just touch his shoulders and be clean. Jesus, who is full of authority and power and full of love in all of his love, grabs hold, I think, of the person, grabs him and, and holds him and, and says, be clean. And immediately he was made clean. By the New Testament leprosy was actually leprosy. Some of your translations will have little footnotes that talk about the fact that it, it, it really was the word in, 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 that they use here is a collection of skin diseases that the priests would, would examine and then they would say, I'm sorry, this is infectious. You have to leave and be, you're basically quarantined, isolated from the community. And, and leprosy or these skin diseases had a disastrous effect. They were physically disfig- they were disfiguring. And often because of the infection that would occur, they would become fatal. These skin lesions were the primary um, external signs of this, this illness. And I, I show you just a picture of a guy who's 24 years of age. 
That's someone who's beginning to have the effects of leprosy. You, you, see, you would see the first ones. You would be told, go to see the priest, and then you would begin to look like this. And not only were you physically disfigured, it usually would touch your nerves and your limbs and your eyes. And, and as they would lose sensitivity and become infected, you could get numbness. And numbness would create, eventually through bruising and scarring, it would cause even some of those to fall off. And it was this incredibly ugly disease. And if you looked like that, I mean, you not only did you look ugly, but you felt emotionally completely isolated, unwanted. Leviticus 13, verse 45 states that such a person with such an infectious disease must wear torn clothing, clothing, let his hair be unkempt, cover the lower part of his face and cry out everywhere, unclean, unclean. In a sense, you were to look a mess. And you were to go around and, and just call out to people, I'm dirty. I'm infectious. I'm defiled. Don't come into contact with me. And it was this incredibly socially horrible disease that cut you off from not only this physical ugliness and this emotional sense of, of feeling just completely devalued and, and unworthy, but it cut you off from community. And spiritually, there was judgment on this. A person was looked at as being cursed or damned. It was often interpreted as the hand of God on a person, as divine punishment. And Jesus sees this person. This guy boldly comes in his brokenness, falls at the feet of Jesus and says, Jesus... If you're willing, I know you can make me clean, but are you willing? What's your heart towards me? Jesus, I know you're the rabbi, the Lord who has come. And, and in some way you're representing God because of what you seem to be doing. And so as you represent God and if I am fallen before you in my brokenness and I experience this, do you have, do you have a heart for me? And Jesus is... I mean, his heart beats with God's heart and filled with compassion. He reaches out and he says, be clean. And I want to tell you, folks, what Jesus touches becomes clean. What Jesus chooses to touch becomes clean. And immediately the man's skin is clean and pink and normal. Immediately Jesus says unto him, this is really hard. In Mark, this, this is, is, is said much more, but in Matthew, he says it a few times. Don't tell. He basically says to him, um, what I want you to do is not to tell anybody, but I want you to go show yourself to the priest and offer the gift Moses commanded as a testimony to them. And there's a reason why that Jesus does this. One of the things that Matthew wants us to know and the reason he says this is because Matthew is constantly showing the ability and power in the sense that Jesus was the representative of God. And so you'll find in Matthew that, again, it says, as Scripture said, or, or as Scripture is now fulfilled because of Jesus. So there's a sense that he fulfills Scripture, but there's more than that. There's a sense that Jesus came and Jesus listened to the Spirit of God, and yet he was also in compliance with the Word of God when it, when it acted and it, and it moved in love. And so he tells the guy, don't go and tell a whole lot of people. One of the reasons why is because Jesus wanted to go from village to village. As I said last week, he was an itinerant preacher who in faith through the spirit of God healed people and he wanted to go from one place to the other and he wanted to declare the kingdom's reality and then demonstrate it so that people could hear it firsthand 
And yet he also said, go tell the the priest and go show yourself because they were the medical people that day. Go get examined and let them know. Just like Kathy went back and said, you know, let me see about my EKG. I'm not going to be foolish. And it felt like this, but I'm going to still be in compliance with medically God has been giving us as gifts. So here's the question. Back to the question. The willingness of God. I have been so tempted to want to go beyond this and, and I just want to, I want to pull back and leave you with questions and you may be thinking, well, what do you think about this pastor? It doesn't really matter. What does God's word have to say? And what I want you to do is to wrestle with this. What does it mean that Jesus sees your need and you come to him? What I find in this word of, of God, in Matthew alone, what you have to look at, what Matthew seems to present, is that Jesus is God in fullness coming to this earth. And he loves people who come to him in their brokenness. And I think sometimes, too often, and I want to push this a little bit, too often we just settle For the teaching of our culture and day. And I really want us to to come and to do what Jesus commands us to do. And that is to come to his feet and say, Jesus, this is what's going on in my life. I bring it to you. What is it you desire to do? And I want you to know that no matter what he does, his heart for you is filled with compassion. And you have to settle that question. It is so clear. No matter what circumstance you're in right now, no matter even if you know in your heart that you're turning and you're rebelling against God, you will not experience his, his presence and his power and his life. And you'll, you'll feel guilt. You'll feel those things. But Jesus is not in heaven sitting there going, let him have it. His heart is filled with compassion, longing for you to come and fall before him and say, touch me. So, I look at this, and um, one of the passages that informs me in this is Luke chapter 11. And I love this because what, what I find here is that Jesus is able and he is willing and his heart is compassionate toward us. We see broken people coming before them with their need. And what I want us to do before we too quickly make assumptions because of our own theological backgrounds and everything else, I want us to do what I think Jesus was calling us to do, what I think he wants us as a community to do. And that is to be people who, as I, as I came here, one of my deep, deep desires is that we would be people who listen to the Spirit of God and allow his word to apply it to our lives and be in community with one another because when you do those three things it helps you walk in integrity and in full truth so what i find in luke 11 is interesting the disciples are looking at jesus verse 1 tells us you see on the screen when one day jesus is praying he's in a certain place when he finished the disciples look at him go there's something about this prayer stuff that jesus is doing would you let us in on it that's why we were singing the, you know, the, our Lord's Prayer. He then goes, let me show you a model prayer of how you bring yourself to God. You come to God, you recognize His greatness, and you say, Father, Thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Let Your kingdom come through me in the way it should in heaven here as well. And then you submit yourself in all those prayers. You know, give us this, do this, Lord, you know, I forgive where I need to forgive and on and on. And then you come, which I think is so interesting, he comes to the end of the model prayer. Look at what Jesus does. He now turns and he says to them in verse 5, Then he said to them, to his disciples, suppose one of you has a friend. And he goes to him at midnight and the friend, lend, he says to the friend, lend me some loaves of bread. 
Some people, visitors have come and I'm supposed to feed them. And, and as you begin to think about feeding them, you realize you have nothing. So you're knocking at your friend's door. And as you're knocking at the door, your friend returns back with these words. He says, don't bother me. The door's already locked and my children are in bed. I can't get up to give you anything. Jesus does this again and again. He gives these pictures and he goes, that's not anything like God. There's a story in Luke 18 about a widow who is persistent and does the same thing because Jesus is teaching him how to pray. And he talks about an unjust judge who won't listen to a thing. The whole idea is that is not God's heart, his willingness, his heart towards you. He is willing. But then he also says this. That person stood there and by persistence, finally, the guy gave him this idea of that he kept, he kept knocking. And then Jesus goes right into verse 9 through 13, which is so important. He then says to them, this is what I want you to learn about coming to Jesus, to, to the Father. Ask. I want you to seek. I want you to knock. So that when these things come in your life and you're broken by them and you're seeking to deal with them, you're coming before God who loves you, who is compelled by love. You come in your brokenness. And, and instead of just asking once and saying, oh, I guess, God, you don't really hear me. Plead, seek, knock, continue to come before him and allow God to do what he needs to do. And what's so interesting about this passage, it ends by saying, don't you understand that even though you're evil and you give good gifts, people, your father in heaven is so incredibly great. You know what he'll give you? He will give you the Holy Spirit. And what he means by that, what he's saying by that is as you seek and you knock and you come before him. And it may be a long period of time as you continue to come to him. He will give you an answer. He will reveal by his spirit what he has for you personally. As you do that according to his word, as you do that in community. That's how God moves. And I don't want to say anything more than that, because I think in a sense, as you look at this passage of scripture, I just want to challenge us as people to, to kind of push the envelope a little bit and say, God, I'm not going to just settle. I'm going to go to you like your word says. I'm going to ask you. I'm going to ask for your Holy Spirit to reveal, because who knows? It may be a spiritual route. It may be some generational thing. It may be something else. But God, I'm just going to continue to come before you. I'm not going to not go to the medical route and really seek you, God, but I'm not going to just give up and settle. I'm going to say, God, here's my need. I bring it before you. Think of this. Jesus knew he would die on the cross. He goes to a garden and in the garden. What does he do three times? He says, God, if there's just another way. Paul, on the other hand, three times is praying about his eye situation. And after a period of time, he hears from the spirit of God. Doesn't. Do it according to some traditions. But as the Spirit of God says to him, Paul, my grace is sufficient for you. I just don't want us to be too quickly to accept what we've just always heard. Well, you know, we're out of time, but I just I want to tell you this story. okay? because it's so encouraged me. It's a story that I remember when I was back in seminary. It was a. It, it, it showed up in Christianity Today. It was in The Power of Prayer. Norm Geisler, an apologist, put it in one of his books. Um, so this is verifiable. Barbara Kaminsky. She says, I still remember the whispers as I struggled through the halls in high school. People would say, look at her stagger. I'd hear them say, I think she's drunk. And she would say, kids were seen, they were just so cruel. They didn't know me and they had no idea what was happening in my body. I wish I could tell all the gossips how hard I, 
I tried to walk like a normal person. How much I wanted to write a letter without my hand trembling. How much I wanted to go the whole day without falling down. But if they asked me what was wrong, I'd love to tell them I didn't know. And the doctors didn't know either. As time went by, it was getting drastically worse. Back then, I was making a painful discovery about serious illness that I hadn't expected. One of the things that illness can do, which is really interesting, hear this, it's very much like the leper, it can make you feel like an outsider in the human family. The sickness of your body can undermine your feelings of worth and usefulness. So it becomes sick in spirit too, and at the same time when you most need to feel close to God. How to be spiritually well, how to regain my sense of wholeness and value was a search that became as critical to me as finding ways to cope with my deteriorating health. Barbara explains how her life and body became crippled to a disease that test after test couldn't diagnose. It began in high school early on and finally forced her to drop out of college. And after more tests and more symptoms and more problems, she finally was given direction to go to the Mayo Clinic. And she went to the Mayo Clinic and they brought her a conclusion. Her doctor said, Barbara, we've identified your condition. You have MS, multiple sclerosis. It usually doesn't strike people like you, this young Barbara, but we can only hope your case is a mild one. Very soon, the course my MS was taking became clear. My heart and lungs failed twice within a couple of years, and I was rushed to the hospital both times near death. For a few years, the disease went into remission, only to return a few years later with a vengeance. I went from cane to crutches. Inside my body, vital organs were beginning to fail. A partly paralyzed diaphragm made breathing difficult, and asthma and pneumonia became chronic problems. I needed a Foley catheter for bladder control, and when I lost bowel function, I had to have an ileostomy. Eventually, I was in a wheelchair, and my feet and my hands curled up. They were all but useless. I required a constant supply of oxygen. And that year I went again to the Mayo Clinic hoping to discover new techniques just to help my labored breathing. There weren't any. Clinic doctors didn't hold out a false hope. They, they said to her, Barbara, pray. Nothing we can do can prevent this deterioration. Pray. Was this just a cliche, she asked herself, and she said it wasn't. As a child of nine, I had committed my life to Jesus, and then as a teenager, I drifted away. It was during this time of some of the illness, a doctor and his wife helped me to find my way back to God. A pastor who helped me begin to discover what I needed most. This is really interesting if you're in illness. What I needed most, she said, was not to concentrate so much on the disease, but was a goal. The goal was to grow in faith. It became my job, something I could do despite all the pain and loss of bodily capacity, and I worked at it. Sometimes I failed, I gave up, lost God, and asked why. Yet always, no matter how low or sick or abandoned I felt, I eventually would get a little spiritual nudge, a reminder of all the times I nearly died but didn't, a reminder of all the people in my church who were praying for me, a reminder of all the people in the community who were concerned for me. And finally, then, after another grim visit to the Mayo Clinic, I felt a new urgency about my connection to God. With less physical health than ever before, I yearned for more spiritual health than I ever had before. I cried out, please, please, God, I can't even read your word anymore. She's becoming blind. I need something to do. 
Over and over I pleaded for something to counteract the fact that I could barely move. I craved activity, action. I, I called out to God, just give me I, action. And as I prayed and I asked and I sought and I knocked and I came before God with this, his answer came. Not in a flash, not overnight, but through prayer itself. The Lord said praying is action. I want you to pray for others. How simple, how possible. Until the thought came to me, I had seen prayer as just a passive thing. Now I saw that praying for others could be my gymnastics. It was my, my flute playing that I once so enjoyed. It was now my special activity. And she shares how prayer became a compelling need, an actual vocation. As her condition worsened, the lung collapsed. She's now blind, practically. She underwent a tascheostomy, uh, which is an incision in the windpipe that would allow a more direct connection of oxygen so she could just breathe. Everyone, she said, knew she was dying. The doctors had told her her pastor made a kind of a last visit. Her parents began constant with hospice volunteers of the county of DuPage in Chicago area. On Sunday, the day of my sister Jan's 29th birthday, that morning, two friends, Joyce Jugan and Angela Crawford, popped in after the morning worship service. As the three of us visited, I heard a fourth voice. A firm, audible voice over my left shoulder. My child, get up and walk. Startled, I looked at my friends and I could see that they had not heard the voice, but I was certain that I had heard it. Joyce, Angela, I blurted out. God just spoke to me. He said to me, get up and walk. And they kind of looked at her quizzically like... She said, I know it's weird. I said, but God really, he just spoke to me. I, I, would you guys run and get my family? I want them. And as they ran, and she was kind of waiting for them to come back, she said they flew out the hallway and called my sisters and parents. And as they were rushing back in the room, I couldn't wait any longer. I took the oxygen tube from my throat, removed the brace from my arm, actually jumped out of bed, and there I stood on two legs that hadn't held the weight of my body in over five years. This wasn't possible, of course. There were 1,001 medical reasons why this couldn't be happening. Yet there I stood firmly, solidly, feeling tingly all over as if I had stepped from an invigorating shower. I could breathe freely and I could actually see, I could see me. A whole healthy me. My hands were normal, not curled to my wrist. The muscles in my arms and legs were filled out and whole. My feet were flat to the ground like a dancer's. And all the steps I danced as I headed toward the doorway, I met my mother in the hallway and she stopped short kind of panic-stricken, then she lifted the hem of my nightgown and her eyes widened and her arms flung wide and she said, Barbara, you have calves again. Yeah. Dad was on the wheelchair ramp in the family room, speechless. He wrapped me in his arms. And he waltzed around and around. And then everyone, my parents and Aunt Ruthie and Jan and my teenage sister Amy, applauded wildly while I tried some ballet stunts I hadn't done in 16 years. Next, I walked up to the couch, sat down and stood up again, down, up, down, up. I did it six times in a row. And Angela Crawford, my friend, who is an occupational therapist, hardly knew what she was saying. She's looking at me going, Barb, you can't. And she took my pulse and exclaimed, Barb. You just wrecked everything I learned in school. You're absolutely normal. It's a miracle. And we praise God together right there. And Barbara did go show herself 
to the priests or the doctors of our day who are all amazed. One of her surgeons, Dr. Harold Adolph, summed up her case in a written report. Here's what he wrote. At the present time, the patient has no findings of multiple sclerosis, walks normally, speaks normally, and is very happy, as is her family, over the obvious answer to prayer and the good hand of God in her life. And she says, I don't know why God healed me. I don't believe I earned or deserved a healing any more than I deserved MS. I only know that on the morning of June 7, 1981, I felt good about myself mentally, emotionally, and physically. And through my prayer life, I was busy, active member of the human family, not running or jumping or even walking like most people, but not separated from them by bitterness, self-pity, or despair. My mind and my spirit were healthy and whole, and God then all of a sudden made my body whole. Jesus still heals in my prayers that um, even if we have three, four, or five, or more, that God would receive glory and that we would just press into him in prayer.